Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney, alongside my co-host, Matt Miller. Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and at Bloomberg.com slash podcast. Now, let's talk a little bit about the markets and the economy with Katie Nixon. She is Chief Investment Officer at Northern Trust Wealth Management, joining us out of Rye, New York. And uh, let's get first to um, your expectations for the number on Friday and how it plays into what we heard from the Fed at Jackson Hole, Katie. Well, good morning, and thanks for having me. I mean, I guess it would be right around the consensus for the Friday number, around 750, a little bit of a decline from um, from last month. But I think the point is this data for the next several weeks and maybe months is going to just be really, really noisy as we're seeing um, some of this, uh, this other data come in a bit softer than expected relative to uh, pre-Delta um, expectations. So I think we're going to be in this period of sort of uh, give and take with the with the macro data, which, I mean, again, for, for investors, it, it's very consistent with what we heard from the Fed on, fr- uh, on Friday, from Powell on Friday, that, you know, he's keeping his options open. All right. Well, I think investors need, Katie, to keep their options open as well. I'm looking at the 10-year here, just stubbornly uh, staying around this 1.30 level, seemingly in a trading bound, tough to make a living down there at that kind of rate. Where are you kind of, as you talk to clients here and you and your advisors at Northern Trust, where are you telling them to go in terms of asset allocation right here? Well, you know, I think this is a very, very important um, discussion to have right now because there is this sort of feeling that we should be out of bonds because rates are so low. Um, but what we're telling our clients is, you know, fixed income plays, high quality fixed income plays a really important role in your portfolio, even at these levels of yield, these low levels of yield, which, by the way, we expect are going to stay low for probably even longer than the market expects. So get used to these, uh, these low yields. They're going to be with us for a while. But the role of fixed income in the portfolio is to provide you that diversification. And what we've seen time and time again is during stressful times in the market, risk assets all sort of perform the same. Um, so we want to make sure that our clients have the right amount of fixed income. You don't want too much because the, the yields are so low, but you want to have a, a, an amount of fixed income that's going to help you meet your, your goals during times of market stress and not force you to sell risk assets. Um, but beyond that, within our risk asset portfolio, I'll tell you one area that we like right now, obviously we like U.S. equities. That's where you know we've seen very strong growth. Uh, we continue to think we're going to see momentum into 2022 and perhaps even beyond from an earnings perspective. Um, the Fed's on hold, so you know the, the, the rate environment's going to stay con- uh, very constructive also for the next several years. But we also like high yield. And we're seeing you know the, the credit worthiness of high yield credits improve um, over this cycle, and we expect they're going to continue to improve, and we can see spreads grind even tighter than they are right now. So U.S. equities, high yield, that's sort of where we're leaning into from a tactical perspective in our risk asset portfolio. What, what kind of taper do you want to see? Um, what kind of taper, you know, is helpful to your investors? Right. Well, we are expecting the taper to be very slow and very deliberate. So six to nine months of tapering, um, hopefully, will be sort of back to the future and watching paint dry, as I think Janet Yellen said uh, in the previous taper. Um, so we, we don't think it's going to be a meaningful event to the market. 
Um, we only have one data point the last time we went through tapering. And, you know, after the taper tantrum, which is really a communication issue, the market really absorbed the taper very, very well and then starts to focus on the next move, which is when are we going to see rates increase? And for us, we may see a liftoff in 2023, but if we do, it's going to be much slower and much lower than the market thinks. So given that backdrop, Katie, uh, in terms of the equity side of the business, are, are you suggesting to your representatives and your clients that they focus more on maybe the good, strong top-line growth stories, maybe in tech and healthcare, or um, maybe go into that, lean into that rotation trade, which has been working so well, which is more cyclical uh, sectors, maybe like, you know, banks or, or energy. Where, where are you on that discussion? Yeah, I mean, I think it's important to take a diversified approach. I think investors have learned this year especially that having both is kind of the way you want to go because we've seen this pivot between growth and value, for example. I mean, you know, we've had we had a value outperformance, and now sort of year-to-date uh, growth is, is edging out value. They've both had very good absolute performance, but we've seen sort of that pivot between growth and value happen a lot of times. So we, we advise our clients to lean into both and not to have to pick a side in this um, in this race. One of the things that we are looking at, though, a lot right now is upping the quality of our uh, of our equity investments. So really looking at, at quality as a factor and sort of adding that into the portfolios as we as we can. Katie, thanks so much for joining us. Great to get your insight on um, what is actually an exciting time, even though you know yields yep. are low and it may be. Um, difficult. Your job might be more difficult than it normally would be. Um, certainly, from a journalistic perspective, it is fascinating to follow. Even if Jay Powell's intonation could be a little bit more exciting. <laughs> yes, exactly. He's when not... he's reading a speech, I just want to go with him and just go through it once or twice. You know, Give a little coaching. A little coaching, yeah. but I mean, I found you know, especially his defense of um, uh, the inflation picture and their inflation take i thought was spot on and i think um katie did too she's got a great note that you can check out on the northern trust website and i highly recommend uh going to wealth.northerntrust.com to check that out katie nixon um joining us the cio of northern trust wealth management this is bloomberg now we told you at the top of the show about 30 minutes ago that we saw the Consumer Board, Consumer, uh, sorry, the Conference Board Consumer Confidence Index coming out at 113.8. We were looking for a reading of 123, and the prior reading was 129. So it looks a little bit soft here. Let's bring in Lynn Franco, Director of Economic Indicators and Surveys um, from the Conference Board. And Lynn, this actually makes sense considering the other high frequency data that we've seen is just is this just an end of summer vacation thing um uh, a little bit of cloudy vision into the beginning of the school year why is this i think what we're seeing here is rising concerns about the delta variant uh, and to a somewhat lesser degree consumers expressing some concern about uh, rising gas and food prices uh so we've seen that not only take a bite out of how they assess current economic conditions, uh, but also cast somewhat of a cloud over their short-term uh, prospects. So it's virus and inflation. Yes. And, I mean, the good news within this is that the employment uh, indicators did not really decline substantially. So, you know, we do expect the economy and the job market to remain strong. 
Uh, hopefully, um, you know, we can get a handle around uh, this recent surge, and that will help sort of alleviate some of consumers' uh, concerns. But it could pose a little bit of a, um, you know, a, a headwind to uh, spending, especially in-person spending. So, Lynn, talk to us. I want to follow up a little bit on that on that labor issue there because we still have, uh, you know, a lot of folks that are out of work, but there's also a lot of openings out there, and a lot of companies are raising pay. How does the kind of the labor outlook factor in? I think the labor outlook, especially uh, what we're seeing in our report, uh, remained more favorable than the economic outlook, which I think is good news, uh, you know, to help support spending. Uh, We do know that at least in terms of claims and other labor data, you know, we're sort of uh, getting back to more favorable readings. So we hope that will help boost, uh, you know, confidence uh, in the coming months. And in fact, if we take a look at their spending intentions, um, you know, here too, we saw a little bit of cooling off in durables and autos and home purchase intentions uh, and a shift more towards in-person. We saw a little bit of a pickup in travel intentions. Um, so that, I think, was a sort of good news. There is at least some willingness to continue to spend. You know, we all um, watch, Lynn, in markets very closely, the non-farm payrolls number. It's been referred to as the granddaddy of economic indicators. Does the consumer care about this kind of data? Well, I think, you know, obviously they do. It impacts them. It supports consumer confidence. And we only had a slight uptick in the percent of consumers who were telling us jobs are are hard to get, right? So uh, I think that's somewhat favorable news. And their outlook, even though we saw a little bit of a decline in their outlook regarding uh, where the labor market's headed, it still remains very positive overall. So it could be that this is sort of more Delta-driven than jobs-driven. And, Lynn, some of the uh, supplemental unemployment benefits are set to expire in early September. How do you think that's going to be reflected in, in the data? I think what we're seeing here is we saw a little bit of a decline in the percent of consumers who said they expect their incomes to increase over the coming months. Uh, But we know right now from not only this survey, but other surveys um, that, you know, most people are sort of stashing away the extra money. Uh, We saw an uptick in the savings rate. Uh, So at least consumers are somewhat willing and able to spend. Uh, I think just what we're seeing here is a little concern about the Delta variant and that could likely impact in-person services over the coming months. Uh, is is the um, vaccine rate at all playing into this? The fact that, you know, certainly from our perspective here in Europe, Americans just aren't getting vaccinated um, as fast as we thought they would or as fast as we are. Well, I think if we see an uptick in vaccination rates, which we have, uh, that may help offset some of the concerns about, um, you know, the increase in the spread of the Delta variant. Uh, So that would be one way to sort of counter the concern. Hey, Lynn, thanks so much for joining us. We really appreciate it. Lynn Franco, Director of Economic Indicators and Surveys at the Conference Board. All right, I want to bring in Yoni Asiya right now. He's the CEO of eToro, joining us on the phone out of Israel. And I am uh, very familiar with eToro. I've worked with a, a number of your analysts, had them on various programs, Yoni, so I get it. But you say you're the world's leading social investment network. That's the tagline. What does that mean? Hi, and thank you for having me. I'm actually here in New York. Um, uh, So very quickly, uh, eToro is the largest social investment network. Uh, We have 22 million registered users, uh, mostly outside of the U.S., 
who registered to our social network where our users can trade commission-free stock trading as well as cryptocurrencies within a social network so everybody can actually see the most successful investors' performance over time, uh, their monthly uh, uh, performance as well as their actual portfolio location and communicate and collaborate with one another and then use our patent technology to automatically copy the most successful investors. So if you see an investor which generated 30% returns every year for the past five years on average, you just click copy with, let's say, $5,000, and it copies his entire portfolio into your portfolio for that $5,000. And every time he trades, it trades in your account at the same time, the same price, and, and the same proportion. So we basically brought in the sharing economy into the world of trading and investing. So as you think about your customer base, Yoni, I mean, obviously a big, big increase uh, <laughs> since the pandemic. How permanent is that? How sticky is that? How do you think about the growth of, of the folks that you know would be interested in your platform? First of, first of all, we definitely have seen explosive growth over the past uh, 18 months since uh, the, I would generally say an inflection point uh, that started the rise of millennial investors all over the world in March 2020. Uh, we just recently announced our uh, Q2 earnings this year. Uh, and we grew from Q2 last year to Q2 this year between 120 and 140 percent on various KPIs from registered users, uh, where we added more than two and a half million registered users just this quarter uh, in Q2. I think we are seeing, uh, again, a very significant secular trend where there's a whole generation, people who didn't participate in capital markets before, both in the U.S., uh, but also all around the world, in Europe and in Asia, who are simply asking what to do with our money, where to invest our money. Uh, and maybe it starts w with a bigger question, uh, which uh, is a very big discussion right now all over the world. What is the value of my money, which, uh, again, comes from a, in a confluence of circumstances of zero interest rates, a very big discussion about inflation, uh, and the fact that governments all around the world are printing money in, at unprecedented uh, rates are leading uh, a whole generation to ask, what is the value of my dollars or euros or pounds, and where can I invest my money so it will grow over time? Not sure if you saw the John Paulson interview um, with David Rubenstein we had on the air yesterday, but essentially the investor so famous for his big short during the uh, crash of the housing market said he doesn't recommend buying crypto at all. He thinks it's just a worthless um, asset that is speculated on because of, you know, I think, what was the line, Paul? Limited availability the, of bit, nothing <laughs> limited supply of nothing um do you think it matters to um young investors today what the hedge fund titans of yesteryear think about crypto i think not everybody has to love every asset in order for that asset to to be successful over time not everybody uh loves Facebook, uh, but Facebook is a successful company, and a lot of investors uh, in Facebook uh, stock uh, have uh, seen appreciation over time. I can definitely say the same about Tesla stock and Amazon stock, who have had a lot of uh, uh, negative uh, sort of P 
people talk about it in, in sort of in past years, right? When uh, when Amazon in the early 2000s and Tesla just three, four, five years ago. I, I think you know every investor has his own right to analyze and to uh, evaluate different markets. There's no doubt that the crypto markets one are super interesting, and second are, are a sort of a generational asset class. Uh, the majority of investors in eToro are under 40, uh, and uh, the majority of investors on eToro hold both equities, so both stock markets as well as crypto assets. Uh, so I, w- I would generally say it's great when we have super smart people like Elon Musk, Casey Wood, and, and, and Jack Dorsey talk about crypto and, and believe in, in Bitcoin and support it, but uh, you don't need necessarily every investor in the world to believe in Bitcoin in order for it to be successful over time. So uh, generally, you should always expect some peop- some naysayers, otherwise the price would already moon. So Yoni, I guess probably one of the next steps that a lot of people are, are looking at in terms of the development of the crypto market writ large is some type of regulation. Uh, what is your view of regulating the crypto market? How do you think it should play out? Um, what are your thoughts there? So we, we found that eToro uh, before crypto was out there, uh, and we are a regulated financial institution. We're regulated in Europe, in the UK, in Australia, uh, here in uh, the US, uh, as well as uh, expanding our, our regulatory licenses, both in Asia and the Middle East. So th- there's no doubt that when you think about consumers, uh, when you think about retail investors, uh, the regu- regulators are there uh, to protect uh, cus- customers' interest. Uh, that is the role, and that is why a significant part of retail investors will eventually work with regulated financial institutions. Uh, I think regulators are definitely catching up. They see a lot of the benefits of blockchain technology uh, and its value actually to eventually provide both innovation uh, and protection to customers' uh, interests. Uh, And I think what we're seeing now, as we see in any innovation in any market that's regulated, regulators are learning and are putting in the the rules in place to be able from one hand to promote innovation and to to enable efficient markets and the growth of those markets and in the same time protect customer interests. And and we see that with with regulators all around the world. Uh, I think as in any market that's growing fast and striving on limitless innovation, it's it's very important to balance between those. Fantastic. Yoni, thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciate it getting an update there. Yoni, I see you. CEO of El Toro. Home price gains set another record fueled by bidding wars. Now, for some of us, that's good news. For others, not so much. Let's get the latest we can do that with Sam Dunlop. He's a chief investment officer of public strategies at Angel Oak Capital Advisors. They have about $13 billion in assets under management. Joining us on the phone from Atlanta. Sam, we're seeing these amazing surges in residential real estate. Um, my question is, is this a covid fueled short-term anomaly or is this something different you know it's definitely got some covid uh, effects clearly but i i think the real key uh you know really going into the pandemic was that we were dealing with a 
uh, a pretty significant supply and demand mismatch of single-family housing. Um, you know, prior to COVID, we were very optimistic on the housing market going into COVID. Uh, clearly, COVID was a huge disruption, but coming out of COVID, uh, it really exacerbated the extraordinary supply and demand mismatch that we currently have. Just the, the rise of the millennial, uh, as well as just the lack of, of investment in housing after the global financial crisis, you know, coupled with the, the pandemic and all-time low mortgage rates just has home prices surging. I see. So those are the two key issues then, Sam, right? The um, first one, the idea that millennials weren't going to buy homes as a result, I guess uh, we weren't building as many as we should have. And the second is people weren't investing in homes as, um, a, financial, as a financial asset as well as a residential you know, solution. And that changed during, during the pandemic. Yeah, absolutely. You're just not seeing enough units come online, you know, to keep pace with uh, the already extraordinary supply shortage. I mean, just to give you some context, the National Association of Realtors, you know, they recently put out the the single family supply and demand gap was approximately six million units currently. And when you couple the the millennials as they as they come online in the housing market, there's you know expected to be an additional uh, three million units that we'll need over the next five years potentially to meet that demand. So, uh, you know, when you had the the housing market really at the center of the of the last global financial crisis, you just had a lack of construction and a lack of investment to to meet those. Uh, pretty extraordinary macro conditions. So this has been a long time coming, but COVID has certainly exaggerated the effects, especially, uh, you know, that Powell's taken us not only to the zero bound, but, uh, you know, continues to buy agency mortgages and treasuries in earnest. So talk to us about the mortgage market here is I know there's, you know, back in 2008 with the financial crisis, you know, a lot of it was just very poor credit standards which led to, you know, uh, people who were borrowing that probably should not have been borrowing and so on and so forth. Give us a sense of how you view the mortgage market here. Yeah, it's a great question. You know, we really look at, and, and, and other market participants do as well, uh, you know, shameless plug for Bloomberg there, there's a mortgage credit availability index that the uh, Mortgage Bankers Association puts out that they can view on your terminal there. But, uh, you know, it, it, the higher that score, the more available credit is. And if you look back to the pre-global financial crisis period, that index got as high as uh, the mid 800s. Uh, and just to give you some context today, you know, we're in the low 100s area. Uh, and you've just seen very little credit expansion uh, in the post-global financial crisis period. Uh, but you also saw a pretty significant amount of tightening uh, in residential mortgage credit availability after the COVID crisis. So uh, that index got as high as 180 pre-COVID, and now it's collapsed down to the 120s today. So, uh, you know, as far as looking at more Mortgages as an investment for for healthy credit quality. Uh, it's certainly an area we've been focused on, just because you haven't seen credit credit standards really expand, uh, especially from from some of the the peak that we saw in, in the pre-global financial crisis period. Is there any concern that we're looking at a bubble that could pop? 
You know, the, the good news is, I would say, from a from a bubble perspective, and what we've been focused on is not only the credit standards that we talked about, but just the, the reduced amount of leverage uh, and just the reduced amount of fraud, in our view, that that drove that bubble in the pre-global financial crisis period. You know, not only have mortgage credit standards tightened dramatically, but mm. you've just seen a whole host of regulation and, and focus from the CFPB and the and the qualified mortgage rules and guidelines that has really improved the integrity of the of the origination process in the U.S. So it's not driven by a leverage per se, which is very important from a right. health perspective. And just looking at those fundamentals, yeah. you're seeing it really driven by the supply and demand mismatch that we're seeing. And, and again, a very yeah. accommodative Fed that we don't see going away anytime soon. Sam, thanks so much for joining us. Sam Dunlap is Chief Investment Officer of Public Strategies at Angel Oak Capital Advisors. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Matt Miller. I'm on Twitter at MattMiller1973. And I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at PT Sweeney. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide at Bloomberg Radio.